I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now, let's get started. Guys, a quick trigger warning on today's episode. We will be dealing with themes of suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, and other mental health challenges. If this is going to trigger something for you, please be safe, look after yourself, and skip ahead to the next ep. But if you're in recovery and feeling strong enough, these are really amazing stories of hope. So stick around. So today's an episode that, if I'm going to be honest with you, I've been avoiding. We're talking about mental health today, and as someone who has seriously struggled with depression pretty much my whole life, it's not a topic I love speaking about. Um, After so many years of speaking to therapists, I'm actually pretty over it. But here's the thing. I got kicked in the butt by postnatal depression. Yay, another variety. And um, I guess I said to myself that I'd share that journey, warts and all, in the hope of making another parent feel less alone. So that's what today is, an episode all about going crazy, mental health and parenthood. Specifically, that sharp, scary time as a parent where you really do worry that you might actually lose your mind. The bit where you finally crack, meet your edge, or as I think of it, come to the brink. About a year ago, when I was at my worst, I started recording a voice journal. I hate writing in the old analog way, my hand cramps up, but I really felt like I had to get these feelings out. Some were kind of funny. I had a total meltdown before and started crying midway through peeling potatoes. I'm now peeling potatoes again, following my meltdown. And um, I guess that's just what it looks like when you're (laughs) depressed at a mother. Some were not so funny. Days like today when I wake up and and things aren't good, it sort of feels like a fog, like just this thick cotton wool in my head. And I sort of have to, like, make a list of things that I need to do. Like, I need to shower and then I need to eat breakfast um yeah it's kind of how to human (laughs) when all I want to do is just lie on the ground in a darker room and sleep but mostly listening back to them they're just heartbreakingly sad I was drowning (sighs) I am fucking tired of feeling this way every day and not getting any better. All of these things that I've worked since I was a teenager to try and stop doing, I just can't. That's just going to be who I am forever. 
and I don't know what kind of mother that's going to make me. When I was at my worst, at my breaking point, I said to my psychologist that I was on the brink. I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't keep up appearances. I was hurting myself in so many ways just to try and stay afloat and to feel something. I was truly on the brink. And it's funny, I'll, I'll never forget her answer. She said, Maggie, what's on the other side of that brink? So today I'm taking that question and I'm diving straight in. I'm going deep into the hornet's nest and visiting the ward of a private mental health care facility that's made specifically for new mums who have also reached breaking point. I'm speaking to some outpatients, some current patients, a head psychologist, even the hospital CEO, and I'm asking them, what is the brink and what lies on the other side? Belmont Private Hospital is perched on a big hill in Carina Heights, Brisbane. It's set among gum trees and big shady poinciana trees. And aside from the construction of their new mums and bubs wing further down the hill, it's really quiet all the time. You can just hear the birds singing and it's really peaceful. The day that we go, we arrive on a typically muggy Brisbane day. And as we're driving up the driveway, I felt this real tightening in my chest. Because in another world, just a whisper from where I was at that moment. I wasn't arriving as a journalist, I was arriving as a patient. So you drive up this uh, long driveway through the trees and you get to a top car park. And I guess it's at that moment you really realise that you're in a hospital. It's got that distinct hospital vibe. Smells like it, sounds like it. There's people in nurses' scrubs, there's patterned carpet, trolleys with towels and half-eaten meals on plastic plates. And yeah, Belmont is a hospital. It's a psychiatric facility and it accepts patients from the entire spectrum of mental disorders. But today we're heading somewhere pretty special. We're going to the perinatal disorders unit and that's where you go when you're a mum who's struggling with your mental health. I visit on a normal weekday morning and feel a little bit like I'm going on a tour of a university campus. To give you a bit of an idea, we've just walked in from a beautiful courtyard. There's trees everywhere. There's a little coffee shop. Uh, it's very sunny and beautiful and welcoming. This room that we're in now feels more like a classroom to me. Yeah. I'm being taken on this tour by Gay Foster. She's a little whip of a woman, five foot nothing, and kind of feels like she might blow away with debris. She's blonde with big eyes and a ready smile. But this woman is a powerhouse. If you believe the patients of Belmont, she is the beating heart of the mums and bubs unit. Gay is the senior psychologist here, and she's going to take me through the ward for a tour. My main role is facilitating psychotherapy group programs for um, our inpatients and day patients. Uh, and we have various types of psychotherapy programs. Our core program is our cognitive behaviour therapy program. Um, that's a program that operates two days a week for six weeks. Um, once our lovely mums have finished our CBT program, they then come to our regular sort of mothers groups, what we call our follow-up programs, and they're on a, a two mornings a week. Gay and I met in a pretty standard-looking classroom. There's all the usual stuff, desks, a whiteboard, stationery. But then, weirdly, there's also a bunch of baby things on the floor. So let's describe where we are right now. We're okay. in a kind of looks like a conference room, um, except that it's filled with baby things. I yes. can see a box of toys, there's a little bouncer, 
what goes on in this room? Okay, so when we have a, a session in here, it's, um, it's a mixture of day patients, so women that are well enough to be home in the community, or it's some of our past inpatients that have become well enough to discharge and they come back and complete their um, CBT program with us. Um, and we have inpatients, so generally the group, the main group is a mixture of inpatients and day patients. Um, we have a, a session, various topics. Um, what would you be talking about? What's an average topic? Okay, okay, an average topic, gosh, we cover all sorts of things from <laughs> understanding and managing the illness and understanding and managing anxiety. We cover um, topics like perfectionism because that's one of the personality traits that we see amongst the population. So perfectionism, we cover guilt because we all know that becoming a mother, um, you know, it's... it's cornerstone of the experience. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, we cover anxiety. Uh, anger, so how to understand and manage anger and how to better deal with that. We give lots of techniques and strategies to manage um, feelings and thoughts. Um, and how do people respond in here? I mean, it's a pretty intimate space. It's kind of like a classroom. Oh, yeah. Are people okay with sitting here and kind of telling you the deepest, darkest secrets? Well, we don't always encourage the deepest, darkest, darkest <laughs> right. secrets. It's more of a psychoeducation program. Uh, because we want to be giving them some skills and strategies to help them recover through the illness. Uh, we're not doing psychotherapy, as I often say to the mums. I'm not going to lie you on the couch for two years and ask you about your childhood experiences. Um, it, this is more present-focused and getting them through the, the process. So far, so good. I was kind of surprised at how jolly the whole thing seemed, if I'm honest. You kind of turn up and you drink some coffee and... Someone was asking me about my perfectionism kink. Like, I was kind of into this. This was really quite enjoyable. But when I asked Gay about what kind of symptoms uh, you would need to show to be admitted somewhere like Belmont, I started to understand that this was much more than a glorified support group. This was, for many women, the last stop. Generally, it's either, um, you know, depression, so very low mood, not feeling like they can cope with the day-to-day the -day tasks that are required as a, a new mum. Often it can be uh, very unhelpful, intrusive thoughts, sometimes harming themselves or thoughts of harming themselves or potentially the baby. Um, then that's not always the case though. Um, of course, on the other side, we see extreme anxiety, not being able to sleep, the typical, you know, sleep when the baby sleeps. Um, what we'll often hear is, you know, the mum's still up at two o'clock in the morning cleaning and not being able to sleep um, uh, and just extremely anxious, anxious about the child, uh, the baby, any illnesses. There are other, other patients we get here too. So generally, you know, once we start exploring the history, there's often a history of mental health. Um, sometimes we hear stories of, oh, you know, I had a depressive episode back at uni or I got really anxious when I had this relationship breakdown um, and they've recovered from that. But then coming into motherhood, uh, again, those mental health issues can rear their head again. And be triggered. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Or sometimes we'll have um, patients that have um, previously been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or some other sort of schizoaffective disorder or borderline personality disorder and they're going through motherhood for the first or second, third time and needing that extra support that you would get from you know, a psychiatric facility and a mother-baby unit. 
With this in mind, I asked Gay if we could go and actually see the wards. She agreed. Okay, so I'm walking through with Gay. We've just left the group session room and it is so beautiful. There is a garden, a huge poinciana tree, and we're about to head into the ward. It looks kind of like a normal hospital to me. I can see a lot of prams everywhere. There's some baby pictures on the walls. Um, so let's go and take a look. It's kind of sweet how there's like a pram. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you'll see some of the artwork yeah. on the walls. These were a lot of them done by the mums. So this beautiful one here was, this was done by our art therapist and some mums a few years ago. Okay, so we're about to enter the nursery and it looks like a nursery in every other hospital. Very cute, very dark, very quiet. These are rooms for the bigger babies because they, as they get older, they get too disturbed with the young ones that cry, so the little ones are kept in here. Okay, and Gay, will the mums sleep in these rooms with their bubs? No, 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 they've got their own rooms. Okay. This is just the nursery, so there's no rooming in. And the reason for that is mental health protocol. In the unlikely event the mum becomes more unwell during the night, maybe becomes psychotic, then we make, need to make sure the baby is safe. So Gay, take us through and, and describe where we're heading to now. We've just walked into the nurse's station and this is where all the action happens. Um, where our lovely nursing staff base themselves to look after the patients. And as we wander down the corridor, we've got a whiteboard where we have information about group programs and who, what staff are on today. Uh, we've got a little bit of a laundry here. Ah, this our... is how we know that we're in a baby ward. That's right. <laughs> the washing machine and the dryer, I don't think they ever stop. They're <laughs> continuously going. Sounds like ours. We've got change tables sprinkled around the corridors and Baby's being changed right now as we speak. Hello, little ones. <laughs> Bad little. Uh, and coming through here, this is um, the lounge room. Where the babies and the mums hang out. And then further through here, this is our feeding room where we make up uh, sterilizers and bottles and the uh, bottles are made up in here with their formula. Um, and then we've got some three big, lovely, comfy lounge chairs for, for feeding. And so, Gay, do you find the mums that are in this unit generally hang out together in these rooms? Yeah, yes. Um, I often say a lot of therapy happens on the couch, just from supporting each other, normalising their experience. That seems to be the thing. Yeah. Realising that, oh, I'm not the only one going through this. Yeah. There's other people here. Yeah, we have a saying. Um, we spend the first 24 hours talking the mum into staying, mm. the last 24 hours talking her into going. By this stage, we've reached the end of a long corridor and we're about to pass through some big hospital doors when I spot these empty rooms. And these are the rooms where mums would actually stay if they came here. This was what I really, really wanted to see. There's a single bed, my ground floor. I'm looking out at some trees. Uh, there's some artwork on the wall. There's a little bathroom. It's small and simple and kind of reminds me of boarding school a little bit. There's a familiarity about this space. Gay, can you talk me through the room? Is there any aspects of it that are kind of deliberately designed for, for the people that will be in here? At this moment, Gay pauses, and I have this dawning realisation on why the room is so bare. There's no cords, there's no curtain rails, no cupboard. 
Nothing that anyone could hang themselves from. It was a pretty sobering moment. Do you know what I'm noticing in this room? What? There doesn't seem to be a lot of encouragement to make it your own. Do people tend to bring their own stuff? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yes. okay. Yeah, often they'll bring their own dunas and pillows and um, that's why it's a bit of a blank canvas, if you like. So just before when we are in the nursery, you did touch on the fact that for safety reasons, the babies don't sleep in the yes. same room as the mums. Yeah. Could you explain to me again why that is? Um, from time to time, mums may become unwell. Um, what do you mean unwell? Um, may experience a psychosis or become psychotic. It, it hasn't happened that I'm aware of in my time here, but it's just because of when the unit was set up 30 years ago, that was the protocol that was uh, learned from the UK. And we've always stuck with that and it's always meant everyone, babies and mums, have been safe. I'd been feeling pretty positive up to this point. Don't get me wrong, the grounds are beautiful, the staff are even more beautiful, but my God, this little hospital room, it was so plain and deliberately empty and it just, it felt heavy. I thought of what it would be like to be a new mum, you know, meant to be in the happiest time of, of parenthood with this new baby, but instead you're waking up here and all you're hearing are the sounds of nurses going from room to room, you know, beeping other babies crying, but your baby is all the way down the hallway. Um, anyway, the loneliness didn't escape me, nor did the fact that this was very real for me to end up here as a patient. I just, I wasn't that far away from this experience. Um, so I started to feel quite claustrophobic actually, and just really wanted to get out. But before we left the board, I asked Gay, what is it that people do while they're in here? Like it was so empty and quiet and I, I was up to date with what they were doing with the classes but that's only an hour or so each day. What do you do with the rest of your time? Sometimes it's the nurses bringing the baby in for a, a feed or to look after. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just getting up when they can. Um, and look, it's up to them. They've really got free reign. They can either shower or have breakfast or... So tell me, when I imagine coming somewhere like Belmont, I would think there would be a really strict routine. Like you wake up, oh, yeah, you're doing yeah. this. It sounds pretty freeform. It is pretty, because the mums also have to look after their babies. So a part of their um, inpatient stay is to, to learn to do some of those mother care skills. Um, and we've got nurses that help them with that. What do you think you're trying to teach women that are coming into this ward in terms of a life skill or a coping skill? What is the biggest thing you reckon you can teach people during their stay? Look, all of that, but I think once they also plug into our programs here, it's more about learning to, to live a more conscious life, um, managing any mental health issues they might have. Um, but even more importantly than that, living what I like to call a proactive life, where they're not just reacting to things that life throws at them, but where they start to live by their values and parent by their values and, and live a full, rich life. It was now time to put that to the test and meet some of Belmont's past and present patients. So I took one last look around this bare and empty room and prepared myself to meet the women who, at one time, called it home. Hi, 
We head upstairs to a big boardroom that overlooked the leafy grounds of Belmont. Sitting around a big table were five people all looking at me, (laughs) a little worried, a little expectant, um, but mostly smiling. We had Anita, Taryn, Michelle, Shannon and Shannon's husband, Luke. They were all outpatients and one outpatient's husband that had volunteered to come in and talk me through life before, during and after Belmont. So we said our hellos and as we ran around the table, there were actually a lot of stories that felt really familiar to me. As soon as she was born, I didn't feel that rush of love that you're meant to get. And I was just told by the nurses, you're probably just going through some baby blues, it's very common. But then there were others that felt a bit bigger and a bit scarier. I was admitted, I think, on a Sunday, and by the Tuesday, um, I was in the middle of a florid uh, episode of postnatal psychosis. So completely lost touch with reality to the point where um, I was saying I didn't know who my husband was and I hadn't had a baby. Every woman's story was different. Some of these women, like Anita, had never experienced any mental health problems in their life until they had kids, until birth. Others, like Taryn, remembered a few moments of the blues over the years, but nothing like the treatment-resistant depression that she experienced after the birth of her son. And then there's women like Michelle, for whom mental illness was a storyline that they were introduced to from their own mothers. My mother, when I was 15, uh, had a nervous breakdown. I remember when it happened, uh, she was driving me to maths tutoring and she pulled over on the side of the Gateway Road and she hasn't driven since. Uh, She came into Belmont and stayed six months. I can now see that the way I dealt with it wasn't particularly healthy. I was a bit avoidant and I had a bit of escapism going on, um, but was a good girl. So I didn't do drugs and I didn't do alcohol. But when it came time for me to come here, I developed such an association with my mother and her problems that I was like, no, I'm not taking medication. I can't take medication. I don't need to go to Belmont. I'm not that sick. So I guess this was one of my biggest questions for the mums at the table. Did you feel like you needed to be here or did you feel like you were being forced into it? I can imagine for all of you there would have been a lot of a narrative that you would have attached to being somewhere like this before coming here. Taryn, maybe you can tell me for you, like, what were you thinking when you came here? What was the story you were telling yourself? So I was telling myself I wasn't sick enough to be admitted to hospital. I'm an occupational therapist and I've done a few clinical placements in mental health settings and to me did not associate with being that unwell when, in fact, I was really unwell. If I hadn't have come here, I wouldn't be alive today. So um, I didn't have a history of diagnosed mental illness, but, you know, looking back, I'm one of those, I guess, high-functioning kind of anxious people, um, always did quite well and pushing myself to do better and better and um, just having this baby and then failing, the narrative in my head was, no, you're just a failure. You just need to step up and mother, like every other woman on this planet can do it, why can't you? Yeah, I think the whole narrative for me and 
I'm now understanding that was an actual symptom of my depression was just that denial, complete denial, that concrete thinking, you know, despite all of the signs, I was not sick enough. And then it got to the point where I thought that maybe I was putting it on and I couldn't even understand what was going through my mind. Taryn fought this impending sense of depression for as long as she could. But for other women, like Anita, they didn't really have a choice. Her mental breakdown was so sudden and so unexpected that she simply woke up at Belmont. So a bit of background on Anita. Um, She had a normal birth, everything was fine, but then she was unable to sleep, like properly unable to sleep. And we're not talking one night or two nights. She didn't sleep for a whole week following her birth. And sadly, Anita ended up going into a psychotic state. So she was brought straight to Belmont from the hospital. Anita, I'm curious with your story, a little bit different, sounds like to everyone else's, which is maybe more of a slow burn. Yours sounded like it's quite an immediate snap as opposed from reality. When you were an inpatient here and you started to perhaps come out of that psychosis and realise where you were and what had happened, what, what did you feel? What did you think? So, I mean, going into it over the course of... Um, a day or so, all of my thoughts became completely distorted to the point where I thought the world was operating according to a system that nobody else could see and, you know, only only I knew about. So that, that sort of thing, when you put it on paper, you think, yes, that's psychotic symptoms. But with the first episode of any mental illness, whether it's psychosis or depression or anxiety, you don't have that insight to recognise that you're unwell. That's just your reality. So as far as you're concerned, you can see that the sky is green outside, even if everyone else can see that it's blue. Once I got the right treatment and came back into the mother-baby unit and my baby was brought back in, I knew that what I'd experienced was a psychotic episode and I could see that that was all really irrational um, thinking. How did you feel at that point? Um, Like I just couldn't catch up. (laughs) It took me several weeks before I look, could look at my baby and go, I just can't catch up to you since... since um, what do you mean catch never. up? Um, I just hadn't even had a moment to just sit and look at her and really enjoy her. I mean, I went... I, I didn't go home. I went straight from the, the um, maternity hospital to Belmont. Um, so how in its entirety between birth and walking in the front door of your house... How long was it before you got home? Um, (laughs) That depends on (laughs) when you calculate it from. So the psychotic episode, I went home after, uh, I think it was about three weeks, and I was told then that um, there was a risk that I could get a rebound depressive episode and that I could have an underlying bipolar disorder both of which I pretty much discounted because I'd never been unwell before. I thought um, I just got really sleep deprived and that's what caused this psychotic episode. Um, My psychiatrist ended up being right Mm -hmm. and a month after I got home, I was back in hospital with a depressive episode. In Belmont? Yes. For how long? Another two months and that was severe. That, That turned catatonic so I couldn't move or speak or eat properly and needed a course of ECT to um, treat that. ECT stands for electroconvulsive therapy. 
Here's how it works. Uh, patients are put under a twilight sedation and shockwaves are sent through the brain, kind of in a bid to scramble the messages a bit and try and reset unhealthy patterns of thinking. It sounds pretty scary, but um, after talking to a lot of the nurses and the patients, they assure me it's not. It just, if you're new there, is pretty confronting. So Taryn had received ECT in her stay at Belmont, but like the medication she was on, it just wasn't working. Taryn was suffering with treatment-resistant depression following the birth of her daughter, and she was finding that she just couldn't get better. I was sleeping because I was on quite heavy medication at night time. Did you have your baby here with you at the time? Yes. Yep. Had her with me um, trying to breastfeed, and then when I went on some strong medication, I had to stop breastfeeding. When I went home for the week, I, I was scared, but thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll have to give it a shot. And I remember going to the kitchen and picking up a knife and self-harming. And I'd never done that before. I'd never had a history of that before. Um, I remember coming here for an appointment with my psychiatrist because I was still coming as an outpatient. And I ran into Mary and she said, oh, Taryn, how are you going? And I just like broke down in like this uncontrollable heap on the floor and showed her my arm and she just, said, come with me, where Charlotte rang my husband and said, we're not letting Taryn go home, you have to bring her stuff in. Um, so just- That's terrifying for it you. It was, it was very, it was terrifying. And I just kept seeing people in the ward with me and they would start a medication and improve and become well and discharge. And I was just thinking, why is that not happening to me? Like, why can I not get better? So the Mary that um, Taryn just referred to is Mary Williams. She's the CEO of Belmont, and we'll be hearing from her in just a little bit. But what's really interesting here is this sense of comparison that Taryn just touched on. Like, imagine being in this intense little bubble at Belmont and watching some patients get better and leave and some patients not get better and leave. It's hard not to see how things become really stratified between the inpatients. Anita explained to me that there's no competition, but there is still a real sense that some women are sicker than others. I don't think it's that obvious, but there's just a, a feeling that it's different. I think when I was in the mother-baby unit, you would come across women saying, oh, well, at least we're not like the real crazies in the rest of the hospital. I think it's just, I think it's just stigma. People with very mild symptoms that might only need a little bit of CBT and a support group. And for them, medication is a massive step and a big sort of, ooh, that's not for me or I'm not that sick. Then once you go into medication, the next step is just having to go into hospital or say in this example, the mother-baby unit, and it's, ooh, I'm not that sick. And the mother-baby unit is a bubble <laughs> in the rest of the hospital. And I think that sometimes then there's that additional stigma of, oh, they're really scary in the rest of the hospital. Um, we're in our own little bubble. All of the women at the table agreed that prior to being admitted, they didn't want to open up to anyone. They certainly didn't want to make friends. They were so lost in their own minds that the idea of meeting or befriending another patient didn't even cross their mind. Here's what Shannon had to say. How did you feel meeting the other mums in here? Uh, I distinctly remember saying to my husband when the decision was made, I was coming to him, don't think I'm making any friends. I'm not there to make friends. I'm there to get better. This is my job. That's it. 
Did, did, did that work? No. <laughs> the, the, the people I have met here truly are some of the closest people in my life. Did you feel any embarrassment or when you came in and you saw the other women, were you, did you feel like you had to give a caveat of who you normally are outside no. of these walls? No. Part of the unwell part is that you're not your real self. When I'm well, I, you know, I get dressed, I put makeup on and do my hair for the day. When I'm not well, all that goes out the window. You, you have this, what's the point, I don't care kind of veil. I, I didn't have any, any need to say, oh, this isn't really me um, because everybody's in the same, same boat. Shannon says that the Belmont bubble was made even more intense when COVID hit in 2020. When I was admitted was the week that COVID broke oh my gosh. in Australia and everything went into lockdown. Um, so that was a big, big change because everything was happening outside the world and we, we were in this little bubble. Mm. They turned off all the TVs. They came, they started removing furniture because now we had social distancing. We didn't understand. Why, why is the couch going down the corridor? It was a very, we were living in this world, inside a world that was rapidly changing. Um, but yeah, the TVs were turned off because that was just too much for us to take on at the time. And we were only told, you know, snippets of what, what was actually happening. And just like everything else on the planet, COVID was a huge disruption to Belmont. As Shannon just described, the sense of isolation was really amplified by these social distancing rules. Um, you know, like in the past, you could kind of sit with a few women on the couch or go for a walk or get a coffee, but suddenly everyone was in masks and had to be 1.5 metres away from each other. For outpatients like Michelle, uh, it was just as bad because meetings went from in-person group sessions to online Zoom meetings. And as we all know, Zoom doesn't even come close to comparing to um, to real life social interaction. So over the COVID period, everyone just sort of gave up for a bit. For me, with my last child, when I got sick, it was post COVID, mm -hmm. and I lost contact with the hospital. They were still running the follow up groups, but um, over Zoom or mm. telehealth or something like that. They were still running them. I wasn't able to go to them because I had two primary school-aged children who needed to be in live classroom sessions twice a day each. So I was doing four live classroom sessions with two kids with a newborn and had lost a baby the year before. Mm. I could feel myself slipping and saying to my husband, you need to watch me, and he watched me. And for me, I just couldn't stop crying. There just came a point where I was just crying and I couldn't stop. And he said, I think it's time that um, you maybe went into hospital. It was funny. I was kind of sweating a bit by this stage of the interview. I felt like I wasn't being completely honest. And so at this point of the conversation, I felt that I needed to be really upfront with the women in front of me. Yes, I was at Belmont as a journalist making a podcast, but I was also there as one of them as a mum struggling with her mental health. At the time of the interview, uh, full disclosure, I was just weeks out of coming from really, really, really bad postnatal depression. I was sort of scratching my way out of it, but definitely not in the clear just yet. So as I sat with them listening to their stories, 
A big part of me, I suppose, was also searching for answers for myself. Uh, so I took a deep breath and I said something out loud that I actually hadn't told anyone at that point in time, not even my family. So for a bit of context, I had a, a baby last year. I had crippling postnatal depression, which I am in the process of coming out of now, which is great. So I'm at the good end of the tunnel, I think. But in therapy, I remember right at the start going, I feel terrified that my brain is broken. I feel that I am on the brink of something. And my therapist stopped and she said, the brink of what? What is the brink? What's on the other side of the brink? And it's such an interesting question. I couldn't answer it. I knew it was bad and it was big and maybe it was, I didn't want to be here anymore. I'm interested to go around and ask you guys, when you met that boundary or you met that edge, what did that look like on the other side for you? The first person to answer my question was Taryn, who spoke earlier about self-harming and her treatment-resistant depression. There was a couple of moments, I guess, in my illness. One was when I was told I needed to stop breastfeeding. Mm. My first ECT, when I first self-harmed, there was a couple of moments where I was like, it just felt like it couldn't get any worse mm. and it just kept getting worse. Mm -hmm. It's hard to define what the brink was because, honestly, it just felt like I was drowning and I could not breathe. I also had a fear that my brain was broken and that there were, that's why the medications weren't working, that something was wrong with me. Mm. I just recall talking to my doctor and the wonderful nurses here and that they were all just saying, you just need to keep going. You need to get to the next hour and then from nine, look at the clock and say, I'm gonna get to 10 o'clock. And I lived my life like that every single day, in the hospital, out of the hospital, um, and so I think for me, when I stopped watching the clock every hour, you know, I, I managed to get three hours and go, okay, all right. It was just such a spiral that it was more so when I saw the signs that I was starting to cope. The next to jump in was Shannon, who says that for her, this brink was the belief that life needed to go on without her. And what lay on the other side of the brink was the realisation that no, she actually was needed here. As a wife, as a mum, a friend, a daughter, she was needed. I was admitted on a Monday. I was here for a week. That first weekend here, I was, I was not in a good place. I had told the nurses, this is it. I'm done. I'm gone. Take the baby, take, my, take our oldest. We can build a life without me. Try as they might, those nurses did everything to get me out of that bed, get me to eat. I wasn't interested. And it wasn't until one of the nurses came in and, and just had a quiet chat with me. I don't know what made me think, but she said, you know that the rate of suicide in children whose parents have suicided is so high. And that just, that got me. I thought, oh my God, I... If, okay, if I can't do this for myself, it's for my kids. And like Taryn, it was just little bit by little bit and little bit by little bit, you slowly take the steps forward to get yourself out of this hole. It's not been easy since that day, but you get yourself out of it. Um, 
So that, to me, is my defining brink day. Taking my life, would that be my legacy? Mm. And so I've focused on that ever since, is that what, what do I want to my life to be? Anita, who had a sudden psychosis after the birth of her first child, says that her brink came not at the height of her illness, but in the moments of frustration in the months and months of recovery that followed. She actually ended up being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So her uh, finish line, I suppose, didn't exist anymore. It felt forever. And I know that feeling well. It's like, I'm doing the work. I'm taking the pills. Why am I not getting better? So I think before I became unwell, um, and even now I have to work at it, I'm someone that likes control over situations and I like to be prepared and I like to think that, you know, the more control I have, the better the outcome is going to be. And I always remember my psychiatrist um, telling me, the more pressure that you put on yourself to get well, the longer it's going to take. And that was such a counterintuitive thing to hear because I suddenly realised that I couldn't will myself um, out of it. And I think ultimately it was sort of unclenching from that control and just having, and I'm, I'm not religious and I don't have faith in many things, but I had to somehow find the faith that I would get better. Um, and I also remember my psychiatrist has said many times over the years, I will get you better. I just can't tell you how long it will take. And that's been, the, the how long it will take has been a very, very difficult hurdle to jump over because I've sometimes thought, I don't care if it's another year from today, I just want a date. I just want mm. a, a time so to work true. towards yeah. when yeah. I know that this will be over. And But it's like labour, right? Like <laughs> I felt like, you know, if you can tell me how long this is going to take, I can get myself to the finish line and I can imagine myself at the finish line, I'll be okay. But you can count right? it. You can but count it's this impossibly, yeah. you know, mysterious, horrible thing happening and you're just like... I think in the end, I just had to settle with um, and have settled with. Each day is another, is another day closer to being better. There's one person who we haven't actually heard from yet, and that is Luke, Shannon's husband. With my own partner, Julian, in the room, I was curious to know what it was like for Luke to be on the outside looking in. Driving your wife and then having to leave your wife at a mental health facility just a few weeks after giving birth, must have been a hugely emotional experience. Luke, we haven't spoken to you yet. We have this very unique perspective, I suppose. We're all talking from within the experience, within the lived experience. You had um, a very different perspective from the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. What was it like watching Shannon become unwell? And at what point did you realise, okay, I have to step in here? Yeah, uh, it was terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. And I remember on that day when, you know, it really broke apart. Could you tell uh, us what happened on that day? When Shannon said the words, I think I need to get help, we both just sat there and cried. <laughs> I've never cried so much in my life. What were you feeling at that time? <sighs> Probably equal parts fear and relief. Mm -hmm. um, fear of unknown, and of course, as soon as we arrived here, 
so much of that lifted when I saw, you know, what this place was like. But also, yeah, very much relief thinking, okay, I, you know, I really feel like we're on the right path here and this is something we can pull through together. What was the biggest change you noticed in Shannon before and after staying at Belmont? I think after having you know, sought the treatment, ha- having a greater understanding of, of what you know, she was going through, I think being able to recognise the signs in that sort of post her stay here uh, before it got you know, bad, you know, we could say, OK, well, things are not going quite so well we knew we needed to step in and do something different. We didn't recognise that, of course, prior until it got bad. So when you say bad, I think for people listening that maybe haven't had an experience with mental illness or, um, you know, postpartum mood disorders, tell me what bad looks like in really Um, simple terms. (laughs) Look, I guess for for us, for Shannon, it, it was very much that, you know, stopping looking after herself and, you know, not wanting to eat, and so I remember just, you know, <laughs> trying, you know, so hard to get her just to eat something because I knew, you know, that would, would help. But um, I, it I really think is... If I can help with that. Yeah, sure. Um, when... Because everybody has anxiety. Anxiety is an emotion that everybody has. Um, when you are someone that's diagnosed with anxiety, it's when it affects your day-to-day function. Mm. So I think bad looks like when you pretty much stop functioning or, you yeah. know, reduce reduce function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is things like... Not sleeping. Not, not sleeping, not looking after your basic mm. yep. self-care, um, not looking after your children or not... That not caring, just like, whatever. Do what... I don't care. Mm. Um, and can you, can you clarify yeah. as well? I mean, you know... Um, Bad in this stage when it comes to parenting doesn't necessarily mean you're in the bedroom ignoring your children. You're still going to school drop-off. You're still cooking dinner. You know, it can be hard to tell when bad is bad, right? Like, you still have to parent. Yeah, and it's different for everybody. It's going to look different. And I think that's the other hard part of this disease, for want of a better word, is it looks so different for so many different people that you're just like, oh, well, I'm not... I'm not that. Mm-hmm. Mine look, mine's different, so I don't have that. Mm-hmm. Sitting around the table with these women speaking so frankly about their experiences felt like a breakthrough for me. For over a year, I'd been glossing over the depths of my own grief to try and keep up appearances, I suppose. And Shannon is right. I did a lot of me versus you. Like, I wasn't self-harming like Taryn was, or I wasn't psychotic like Anita was. I didn't have this genetic predisposition like Michelle and unlike Shannon, I was still showering and outwardly probably seeming pretty put together. But just because I couldn't see someone whose depression looked like mine didn't make it less real. My biggest takeaway from this session was how important these conversations are. Just so important. Like right from the moment you birth, you know, there should be so much more awareness around your emotional well-being and it needs to be prioritised right alongside the many, many, many conversations you have about your physical well-being. And as soon as I kind of came out and the medication started working and I was speaking to someone regularly and I was like, just why don't we get this stuff like a week out of hospital? Someone goes, 
how are you, you know? Yeah. And I think um, we were in the group room before and the questions on the whiteboard, I said to Gay, I was like, why don't we just have these conversations yeah. with like everyone? Why do you have to wave the white flag? I think it's the double stigma too of the mental illness and I should be happy. I'm a mother. I'm a mother and so many people yeah. have paid thousands yeah. of dollars for IVF oh my God, or just yeah. can't right. fall pregnant and you did it like this and you're just yeah. wasting your chance. Healthy mum, healthy bub. Yeah. What could you possibly be upset by? Yeah. Totally, yeah. Anita, Shannon, Michelle and Taryn are all actively working towards their recovery and they're doing really well. Some, like Michelle, still come to Belmont for outpatient meetings and others, like Taryn and Shannon, are officially in recovery so they don't come back at all. They, um, they're at home, busy raising children and putting into practice everything they learnt at Belmont. And it's, it's funny, you know, like walk past any of these women in the street and you would just have no clue to this anguish and this journey that they'd experienced. So it had been fascinating to learn about a patient's time within the hospital walls, but there was still one person I really wanted to talk to. And that was the big boss, the big kahuna, CEO Mary Williams. So after a quick bite to eat, I gave the girls a hug, took a really bad quality selfie, you can find that on my Instagram, and uh, we sat down for the last interview of the day. Time for So I was really nervous to meet Mary. Um, I'm not great with authority at the best of times. And I suppose my experience with psychiatrists and psychologists hasn't been great over the years. So uh, yeah, I was pretty nervous. And you know, Mary does have a, a kind of stern look about her. She, she feels a bit like a school principal. She has a two-piece skirt suit, just flawless. Her hair was in this beautiful updo. She had these clip-on earrings. And um, she's quite an intimidating woman. She's, she's tiny, but she's very intimidating. But the minute we sat down to speak, all of my initial impressions were quickly replaced by awe. This was a one-woman powerhouse who has carried Belmont right out of its 1970s origins and into the 21st century. Mary has worked at Belmont for 30 years. 30 she started out as a nurse, and over time, she's worked her way up to CEO. So if anyone was going to be able to shed some light on the state of maternal mental health in this country, it was going to be Mary. Well, actually, I came here when I was in my 20s. I'd come back from overseas, applied for a position here, um, not knowing it was mental health, and came here and discovered that I really enjoyed working in that arena. So I went and did my mental health nursing training and then studied psychology after that. I had five children in less than eight years and so came and went with work through that time here and various other places. Uh, then I came back to work here when our first daughter died suddenly at the age of three mm -hmm. and realised that I needed to get back. In fact, another person who had lost a child said get back to work to just help mm -hmm. and it did. And I really got intrigued by the concept of the the pain of motherhood through my own experience. And at the same time, one of the psychiatrists here, Dr. Enno Tamers, uh, was recognising there was a hugely unmet need for women with perinatal mood disorders. The pain of motherhood. 
It is such an exquisite way to describe what Mary has worked alongside for three decades. Just this unmatched pain of being a mother. And at the time, it sort of sparked a huge, I guess, interest, passion in me. I never had postnatal depression, but I certainly grieved dreadfully the sudden loss of my beautiful daughter. I started to really think about how being a mother, being a parent, is not always a, a Johnson Johnson ad. It can be a tumultuous time of incredible emotions, of not only grief, and I'm not just talking about the grief I experienced, but grief of loss of self, loss of who you are as a couple, uh, loss of your independence, loss of your concept of self as a functioning, intelligent, capable beings. There's nothing like a baby to bring you to your knees with that, with that concept. The hospital itself was founded back in 1973 as a general psychiatric hospital. And in the 1970s, mental health treatment, particularly for women, was still in its infancy. Like, for some context, the psychiatric community didn't even recognise depression in the postpartum period until 1994. 94. Fair to say that the mother-baby wing of Belmont around the time that Mary started was pretty grim. Many of the staff who worked in that unit in the early days, uh, when we were just, <laughs> it was, we set it up in a wing of the hospital that was not really set up for a mother-baby unit. We had a, a big room that used to be a four-bedded room and we had a toilet as the formula preparation room where we had, I mean, workplace health and safety would absolutely <laughs> die, but we had a um, big sort of bench over, the, anyway, in that area setting up, it was, it was dreadful, it was fantastic. And it was a bit of a suck it and see type situation. Along with a couple of other psychiatrists and doctors from the hospital, Mary joined the Marseille Society, an international research body who were looking into mum's mental health around the world. Everything we've done has been evidence-based, based on research, and I just think it's so important to have that sort of guidance when you're working with um, such precious people, such as parents and infants, you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to just, you know, come up with ideas that don't work. So we were very, very careful with what we introduced. Uh, so we started with the concept and the passion of admit mother and baby together, don't separate mother and baby, really, really important. For Mary, this has been a non-negotiable cornerstone of the Belmont system. Help the mum learn how to cope alongside her baby, not isolated and alone. And this is why Belmont leans so strongly on everyday living skills, you know, like sleeping patterns and how to get to work and healthy eating and the importance of exercise. And you should know that this is actually really rare. When it comes to emergency mental health care, Belmont is the exception, not the rule. If you weren't at Belmont and you were, say, in the hospital system, what would happen to you if you presented as someone that's chronically depressed or anxious? Well, first of all, in the public sector, very few people would even be admitted. They would only admit someone into a public psychiatric facility if they were probably psychotic or so depressed that they're expressing suicidal thoughts. So what happens to everyone else? There's horror stories. Right. <laughs> they go home. If they're lucky, they've got support and they get through, but not without collateral damage. So the collateral damage would be uh, the woman may be unwell for quite a significant period of time, which will then impact on her relationship with her partner. 
her concept of herself, her self-esteem. This is the, the best outcome. And the impact on the infant could be there might be a thwarted attachment. Um, worst case scenario, it could mean the woman may go on and have a chronic mental health issue. Mm. It could be a dangerous situation. Regardless of the shortcomings of the public system, Belmont is still a private hospital. It's expensive and it's not going to be an option for someone that can't afford the fees. I wanted to talk to you about um, the financial barrier of mm-hmm. women entering somewhere like Belmont. If I was to come here for a, what's an average day? Three, three weeks. weeks. Three weeks? Three weeks average. How much would that cost? If you didn't have private health insurance? $10,000. It's a big cost for Huge. people. Yeah. And some people have chosen to pay it. Some people right. who don't have... We've had a lot of people through the years who don't have private health insurance mm. who pay or their families pay. Mm-hmm. Um, we do generally work out arrangements to make it a little less right. expensive. Um, the health funds, most of the health funds don't pay for the infant. Mary reckons this is the biggest cost that Belmont faces when setting its fees. The ability to care for newborn infants overnight so mothers can rest. And the difficulty with that is we care for the infant overnight, the mother doesn't. For safety reasons. Safety reasons. There have been a number of tragedies. But also a lot of mums are on sedatives at night time because of sleeping. But this is not something that Mary's prepared to budge on. 30 years of experience tells her that Maslow's basic needs, food, Water, safety, protected sleep are the most important requirements to mental health recovery. Only when these elements are looked after that a woman can begin to heal. I ask Mary what else she's learned in her 30 years in the game. You've been in this industry and in this space for 30 years. It's a pretty unique perspective to kind of see an industry change over three decades. What do you think you didn't know then that you know now? about mums and mental health. I do know that a long follow-up is essential to preventing disasters. Those women who don't engage and don't stay connected with you for whatever reason have more negative outcomes. The very few suicides that we have known through women who've come through the unit have been with women who have not stayed connected. That connection is essential in, in in their recovery, but also in them maintaining their wellness. For a lot of women and their families, we become the substitute supportive family for a lot of people who don't have someone around, like geographical distance, emotional distance that some women have with their mothers and mothers-in-laws. So our our pressure to you guys to have to be in that role? Sometimes. I think about Taryn earlier uh, describing the moment she ran into Mary at the hospital, arms freshly bandaged after her self-harming episode. I think about how she describes Mary, uh, this tiny but amazing woman, just pulling her into a tight embrace and calling her husband and saying she was keeping Taryn there until she personally was sure she was okay. And you know, that's one person, that's one patient. Mary has over 30 years of those moments on her shoulders. My experience of motherhood, and it's very limited, certainly, yeah, but the structure of society and how working women are expected to parent seems to be setting us up for failure. We're not sleeping. Mm. Financially, it's an incredible burden. You're looking at childcare, trying to get around an urban environment with a pram. 
I mean, it goes on and on and on. Do you feel like in your 30 years of working in this industry, things are getting better at supporting mums? Or do you still sit back and go, God, we've got a lot, lot to it's get a, through? It's a good question. I think, first of all, we're more aware of postnatal depression. People are talking that narrative. That narrative is out there now, which is great, because 30 years ago it was still like, mm. um, And that even with, with doctors, you know, people didn't really believe there was such a, a thing we're a lot better at recognising, picking up, getting treatment generally. Um, but I agree with you. And yet, the discussion around mental health postpartum still gets this weird, glossy treatment. You know, just get up and go for a walk in the sun. You'll feel so much better. And don't think I'm on my high horse here. Even as someone with depression, I am completely guilty of propagating this kind of garbage. And even someone in the public eye who talked about their postnatal depression, we had the benefunction, and she was saying how terrible her postnatal depression. But then she said, but I didn't seek treatment, I just exercised my way through. And mm. I went, as soon as she said, I went, good on you, that's just absolute cruelty for everyone else. It's totally. just cruelty. People go, okay, I'm going to beat up myself more because I can't get to the gym and just exercise my way through this. Do you know what? I'm going to actually raise my hand and say, I made that mistake. I went on a podcast, I think three months postpartum, and they said, so how are you dealing with your postnatal depression? I said, oh, well, I'm at the gym and I think it's working really well. It was just a couple of weeks after that that I really had a breakdown and thought, how crazy was this delusion that I could treat it myself? And I think this is the story we keep getting told. And, I, and Taryn before was saying diet, exercise, these are yep. all tools that you have to use to keep getting better. Yep. But I think people are scared of medication and they're scared of being... Of course scared. they are, and I understand that totally. And we do spend a lot of time convincing people and their partners for that medication. And I think just giving people the scientific reason, explaining what it's going to be, it's not mind-altering. You're not going to turn into a zombie. You're not going to turn into... A... Yeah, but it can be the thing that completely changes your story. I came to Belmont expecting drama. I'll be honest with you, I was expecting like the set of Girl Interrupted, basically. And you know what? Yeah, it's a hospital. You feel like you're in a hospital, I'm not going to lie. But in many ways, I think that that's absolutely crucial to the recovery. It's accepting your own illness as an illness, not just a moment of sadness or a moment of craziness or anger. It's something that can be healed. It can be fixed. And as Mary points out, that in itself takes a great deal of bravery. You can change houses, cities, countries, but the darkness in the heart remains. And, you know, as humans, we tend to, when we feel really bad, sometimes think we'd go on a holiday or go away somewhere or do something. Sometimes the trajectory for women is they come and go a few times before they go, hold on a minute, this is where I need to be. So I think it's, for many women, it's a brave sort of step and they develop a degree of stoicism, realising that they have to be here. Most women, the majority of women, embrace it mm. and realise that the help they get, the expert care they get and the reassurance of essential normality from other women, they most of them really like, I don't say like being there, but they do, they do like being there after a while when they realise it's helping. You know what I hate? I hate it when people talk to me about my journey with mental illness. Like, it's not a journey. It's not not some lovely cruise across the Atlantic. Um, there's no scenery. There's no buffet. There sure as hell is no map. 
I feel like mental illness, for me anyway, is just part of life. There's no beginning, there's no middle, and there might not be an end to it. You just kind of have to learn to love it in a way, you know, accept it, let it in. I'm going to tell you a bit about my story, and it's not dissimilar to the women you just heard from. Um, I guess the big difference is I started really young. I saw my first therapist before I had even reached puberty. I want to say I was probably 10 or 11, and I was experiencing big feelings, big feelings. I was coming home from school crying and really anxious and didn't want to go do things. Um, All of those early signs of something maybe being not quite right. So anyway, went off to this therapist and she was lovely. I still remember her. There was lots of texture drawings with color-coded emotions, right? Like blue waves for sadness and red jagged lines for anger. Um, We did lots of deep breathing. There was lots of rainforest noises. It's actually quite nice in retrospect. (laughs) Um, But All of this changed by the time I'd reached my teenage years. What had been perhaps some anxiety when I was younger had really graduated into more of um, depression, I suppose. I was finding myself in these really big, long, extended dark patches and was a bit manic, you know. I was really acting out. Um, I was naughty at school. I was, like, smoking behind the sheds. Well, graffitiing for a short while, which is really embarrassing in retrospect. But anyway, I uh, I was sent to see a psychiatrist this time, and they diagnosed me as being depressed. And it was a title that really stuck. I I suddenly saw myself as quite broken. And um, once I did start behaving erratically, maybe even responding to that diagnosis, I went off to boarding school. I left Brisbane, went off to boarding school and tried to, I suppose, sort myself out. And I didn't sort myself out. I got a tattoo instead. And then I got suspended for selling alcohol and cigarettes in the boarding house. But it was the beginning, I suppose, of a really difficult time for me. And by my 20s, I was in a pretty solid routine of shuffling through various mental health professionals, but not really sticking to anything or anyone. Um, I was medicated. I was on antidepressants, anti-anxiety. Then they gave me sleeping tablets. So there was a real smorgasbord of meds in my system. And then I started drinking. And, of course, that led to doing quite a few recreational drugs. And the mixture of all of this was shocking for me. Um, I would occasionally slip into psychotic states. I began self-harming. It was a really, really dark time for me. And my mind, I had decided, was the enemy. It was this alien entity and at any moment it could snap. And really it was something that I was terrified of. So up and down, I went on this merry-go-round. There was some good years, there were some bad years. And then I met my partner and things were pretty good until I got pregnant. And pregnancy was just the biggest trigger. By by the end of my pregnancy, my anxiety was so bad. I, I dropped out of the hospital system. Um, you know, the weigh-ins were giving me panic attacks. So I tried to have a home birth and then my carefully planned home birth didn't happen because we had, you know, this big, scary medical birth. And the depression set in immediately. It was just this heavy black fog. And, you know, I I see the photos of myself in hospital having just given birth and I can already feel it. You know, like the minute I 
was unable to birth my child naturally and I had this epidural, it all begun this sense that I was failing and that things weren't going to plan. So as I write this, we're one year into parenthood and I've spent most of it depressed. Spent most of it scared and sad um, and I got sick of myself. So about two months ago, I bit the bullet and I admitted I wasn't okay. Um, It was around this time that I was looking into options such as Belmont and that's how it it kind of got on my radar. But uh, luckily, I found a fabulous psychologist instead. Hey, Heidi. And um, started on some really great antidepressants and they managed to pull myself out of this hole. I guess antidepressants for me have been this like little army in my brain. And every time I go to sink in some sad or weird or scared place, it's like they hustle up and link arms and start singing to me that everything's going to be okay and just chill out and go have a bath. You're all good. And for me, that's just been the difference between staying depressed and just managing to get on with life. I'm going to be honest with you. It's really, really scary to say all of this. I've worked over time to maintain a carefully manicured appearance as a non-crazy person. Um, And I guess I'm realising now that's officially over. But if there's anyone who can listen to this and feel less alone, then it's worth it. My job here is done. Because, like you, I'm just trying my hardest. So is Anita and Michelle and Taryn and Shannon. We're all just people with slightly broken brains, but big hearts. And we've all met the brink, maybe more than once. But I guess we all keep managing to push ourselves back from it and giving life another go. So thank you for joining me today. If you are also feeling that you're on the brink, I absolutely encourage you to find someone to speak to. It does get better. And whatever's on the other side of the brink, it's not so bad. I'm here and the water's just fine. A massive thank you to Belmont Hospital for hosting myself and the ParentKind team. Big thank you to Mary Williams, CEO, and Gay Foster, senior psychologist, and a heartfelt thank you to Anita, Michelle, Taryn, Shannon, and Luke. Your generosity in sharing your deepest, darkest moments was nothing short of inspiring. And you, listener, hello. It's a heavy ep, huh? I hope we're still friends, even though now you know I'm mental. I like to think it makes me a bit exotic. Anyway, thanks for hanging out, and remember... This might be a small story of one parent, but it is one huge tale of parent kind. This has been a Super Real production. Parent Kind is produced by Julian Morgans and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show.